This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Kyle. And I am Matthew. And good evening, or morning, or afternoon, whenever you happen to be listening to this. Yeah, who knows? They could listen to this whenever they feel like. Are you sure? I think so. Well, we're going to allow that? I think so. It'd be kind of, I mean, you know, we could be in the shower with somebody right now. Oh, hello. We could be, uh, two people could be, you know, oh boy, making love on the couch. Making well, love. Well, good yeah. While they're, you know, listening to this podcast, because, you know, obviously our voices get people in the mood. Right, uh, you're doing that wrong, by the way. Don't do it like that. No, take one she, of those out of there. She or he don't like that. You take one of those out of there. <laughs> Start, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Hey. Uh, Weird intro, but we'll go with it. Uh, what are we talking about this week, Matthew? Talking about uh, the last best albums of somebody's career. Uh, we have a little bit of old business. Oh, yeah, let's talk about Side that first. business. Um, I'm going to have some merchandise uh, available Ooh. on the website very shortly or on the Facebook page or somewhere. Uh, you can find it uh, if you ever feel like representing your favorite music podcast hosted by two guys in a spare bedroom while drinking beer late at night. <laughs> I figure there has to be a market for I'm that. I'm sure, right? yeah. So uh, I don't know, some shirts and some other uh, accoutrement. Yeah, I... Uh, the guy came by my house the other day to do the plaster cast uh, for the, I assume he, he said Matthew sent him. I did. So. Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. Happy birthday. Oh, thank you. When's your birthday? August. Yeah, okay. Well, early birthday. Sweet. Late Christmas, whatever. <laughs> uh, so uh, the reason uh, that was the old business, that's all I got. Oh, sweet. Uh, so the reason I wanted to do this particular episode uh, is because you know so much time and energy is spent on talking about uh, the highest selling debut albums of all time. It's, it's been covered over and over. And every time an artist breaks through, we have to revisit all of these records again 
as the media recites the list. Yeah. So Appetite for Destruction, uh, Boston's first record, Cracked Rear View by Hootie and the Blowfish, Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette. Uh, they're all fabulous records in their own right, with the exception of uh, Hootie. Uh, <laughs> it's a good record, but it's not like it's he not He only wanted to be with you. Oh, boy. <sighs> <sighs> but uh, let's talk about wise, the wise a little bit, the wise. So we, I think this might need just a little bit more detailed explanation, too, to what it actually means. Okay. So when we say the the last best album... We are talking about a, either a band that uh, broke up or a band that just uh, kind of faded away or potentially a member or all the members of the band died. Correct. Um, and out of all the albums they released up to that point, uh, we feel that the last one is the best. Correct. So typically- It's, a, it's, it's kind of self-explanatory, but for some reason- when you first said it to me, I was like, the what word, are you talking the, about? The wording, the verbiage is, it's is difficult. complicated. So typically an artist's debut album has the songs they have been creating since the very beginning of their career. Yeah. Right? They probably wrote them young, uh, refined them, played them live over and over again, refined them again. And finally, after all that time, they got a chance to record them in a studio. And it's very possible that the final song is much different than the original version of it. This is usually why the second record is usually is never as good as the first record because it's the dreaded sophomore slump. The same amount of time and love and experience is never achieved on the second record. So it suffers. That makes sense. But the last album, well, no one knows when that's going to be typically for many reasons. Death, like you said, breakup, end of a career that that last album just appears. Some of them are gems, and some of them are duds. But by this point, typically a band may have had the advantage of a lengthy career and be experienced to to craft some songs that are worthy of their career, and sometimes it's a financially driven situation that may be impacting the decision Mm -hmm. to stop and or record. So for this podcast, uh, I chose five records to talk about. Um. Now, and I'm not making the opinion that these are the absolute best last albums to be released, these particular five. Uh, Everybody has an opinion about that. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to give a cross-section of genres and reasons for why they were the last albums to be released. Some of them got the credit that they deserved and some did not. Um, At the end, I also have a list of other last best albums that we are not talking about tonight. And hopefully you guys, the fans out there, will submit some of their own uh, that we haven't come up with. Go ahead. I was going to say, I was super surprised uh, in kind of doing some research for this. Yeah. That there was not, this doesn't, I couldn't find anybody else that had done this. Like a lot of times when you're coming up with like a, you know, best 10 rock albums, right. you know, you can literally one of the first things that pops up on Wikipedia is like list of all rock albums of all time. And you're like, oh, God, OK, that's a lot of albums. And I figured, you know, there's going to be a Wikipedia article about, you know, the a list of all the, the final albums that bands have released before they broke up. Or, right. You know, list of albums that bands released posthumously shortly after they died. Or I found one list 
repeated about a thousand times in <laughs> like it was clearly the exact same list because it had the same 10 and it was on in a different format on every page. Oh, interesting. And like somebody just a bunch of people just copied and pasted the same list over mm-hmm. and over again, but it's the exact same list. And two, two of the ones we're going to talk about were actually on that list before I found that list. Hmm, okay. And then some of them I'm like, well, a, that's not a very good record. So I don't know why you'd put that on that list, but you know, who am I to judge? Um, and also uh, just for fun, uh, we may spend a few minutes talking about the worst last albums as well um because there are some real stinkers out there um (laughs) so uh without further ado in uh here they are in no particular order the audio judo not so comprehensive list of last best albums so first one on the list and again no particular order uh synchronicity by the police good album Uh, there's sometimes you just know that the shit is going to hit the fan pretty soon. Right. This was the police fifth, fifth record was released in 1983 and, uh, it has, uh, some of their biggest hits. Uh, every breath you take is on here. King of pain wrapped around your finger. They're all on this record. Sold over 8 million copies, won multiple Grammys, including album of the year. Uh, and during the tour to support it, the police were referred to as the biggest band in the world at this time. Album would be number one in the U.S. for 17 weeks. But inside, uh, they they pretty much hated each other. Specifically, drummer Stuart Copeland and Sting could not stand one another. Can't stand losing you? No. <laughs> could stand losing each other, big time. <laughs> They're both raging type A personalities, and each always wanted control of the situation. So with the preceding string of hits that they were riding on, almost all pinned by Sting, by the way, he was certainly in the driver's seat when it came to the direction of the band's sound. He was going to push whatever he wanted the band to sound like. Uh, They were starting to phase out a lot of the reggae influences that they had been using heavily, uh, and they were adding more keyboards and layering, and were starting to uh, kind of indicate where Sting's solo records were going to head eventually. So the reason this would be their last album was pretty clear. Uh, The hatred was palpable. Uh, They resorted to recording in three different locations at the same time while they were recording this record. Sting was in the control room. Andy Summers was in the actual studio. And Stuart Copeland downstairs in the dining room with his (laughs) drums. So isolated, in fact, that there was no way for them to communicate with him once the song was over other than a small TV monitor that had no sound, and he would have to read producer Hugh Padgham's lips to know if the take was any good or not. <laughs> Multiple times, Hugh would have to intervene with between Sting and Stewart, both verbally and physically, and apparently this record was one meeting away from never being made, which would have sucked. Wow. So, during the recording of Every Breath You Take, Sting insisted on a very simple drum track, Stewart was adamant to let him, quote, put his fucking drum part on it. (laughs) Sting would respond with, I don't want your fucking drum part on it. And so it would continue. This was the nature of their relationship, and it never really improved. Luckily for all of us, the the police reunited for a tour in 2007, 2008, 
And if you ever want to see their relationship on full display, watch the documentary Better Than Therapy that came uh, with the DVD of the Certifiable Tour. It's filmed by Stuart Copeland's son, Jordan, and you get some great insight into the mess that was the police. (laughs) Uh, So song-wise, it has uh, at least three of my all-time favorite police songs. King of Pain, which is just a fantastic song. Song about a uh, breakup of Sting's first marriage. Um, Synchronicity One, uh, which leads off the record. And is so much different than anything else they had recorded previously. Yeah, it really is. It's chaotic. It's a mess. And it starts off with a marimba sounding keyboard part. It's unusual. It is. It's and such it's, a weird sounding police song. It's totally different than anything that had come before. It feels so upbeat and happy too. And it's so weird to think like they were just at each other's throats when they were recording this. Oh, they were terrible, terrible to each other. And and uh, I was talking to uh, show consultant Chris uh-huh. about this. And he's like, he, he was saying, I love Stuart Copeland. I love listening to him talk. He's very articulate. He's such a great drummer. He seems like a great person. And then I see him talk to Sting, and I'm like, what a dick. <laughs> Why is he like this? And, and I'm like, that's the, the nature of their personality is they bring out the awfulness in each other all the time. And Andy Summers was always this third wheel kind of just <laughs> kicking back, playing the most nonsensical guitar parts like what you're not even playing chords what are you doing over there (laughs) it's like he like robert fripped robert fripp like he took robert fripp is the guitarist for king crimson Mm -hmm. and just the stuff he plays like a, a a current example of that is primus so the guitarist from primus Lair lalonde is like that he plays a lot of discordant nonsensical things that have nothing related to the melody and it's just all over the place. And that was Robert Fripp is like that. And Andy Summers would work that in too. And sometimes it was very difficult to get him on the straight to like to the melody. So, but that song is just so unusual. I just love that. I love that. The sound of it. And it's just so much different. And my third favorite uh, song is tea in the Sahara Hmm. uh, because it sounds, uh, it's, it's like a pathway to all things future sting. It really is, isn't it? Yeah. And I don't know why I love it so much, but I could listen to that song all day. I, it's, And maybe it is because it's like a like the opening of Sting's catalog going forward, for Dream of the Blue Turtles and, and Nothing But the Sun and everything that comes after that. It's very, uh, it's, it's right in line with that sound. I'd never thought about that before, but that's completely correct. It, it really is kind of a, I don't know if you can call it a preview, but a prelude, I think is the right word for it. Mm. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a prelude to, to what Sting would do with the, the rest of his career, basically. Prelude. That is good. Prelude. Yes. Um, 
Uh, as far as some other songs on the record go, I'm not entirely sure what to say about Mother <laughs> and Miss Gradenko, but I have a theory. Uh-oh. Mother was written by Andy Summers, Miss Gradenko by Stuart Copeland, and these are the only songs on the record that aren't written by Sting. Murder by Numbers uh, gets a co-writing credit for Summers, but that's it. So I feel like they fought and fought to get some sort of representation on this record. And when Sting finally relented, they decided to F with him and throw <laughs> the most garbagey of garbage that they could on here. So these weren't singles. Yeah. Mother and Miss Grudenko are not singles. Uh, so it wouldn't affect the sales of the record. The only people that were going to hear these songs were people that listened to the whole thing and didn't just jump around to every breath you take and wrapped around your finger. So why not have a little non-destructive fun at Sting's expense? And that's how I feel about it. Hmm. They're so ridiculously out of line yeah. with everything else. You, you can't tell me that those were the two best songs that they had laying around to fill yeah. up the rest of it. Like there had to be something else in play. Like, like we're, they're just sick of his shit. Otherwise, this is a Sting solo record unless like, we put some shit on here. So yeah, and we're gonna put some trash <laughs> on this record. And here it comes. Right? I was, uh, I went for a walk the other day, and I was, I was listening to this for research. And I was just like, what the? I forgot how bad that <laughs> song was. I'm like, I don't. I don't know what's happening, but it's terrible. Yeah. I feel like I'm not having a lot of input here, but it's because I agree with everything that you're saying. It's a agree to agree, agree to agree. <laughs> no argument here. Uh, a small little fun tidbit about Ooh. the records artwork. Uh, there were 36 different versions of the cover that were released. Good Lord. So they had little changes here and there. Uh, the cover is kind of the, uh, a red, a yellow, and a blue paint stripe over these images of the band. And they just flip-flop the images in different places, put different books in Sting's hand on the thing. So there's 36, 36 different versions wow. to keep track of. And uh, the original vinyl was actually dark purple, uh, which looked cool. like regular vinyl until you held it up to a light. And then you can see oh, that it was actually like so a dark cool. purple. So that was pretty cool. Pretty I, cool stuff. I miss stuff like that. So do I. I don't know why you can't have a little fun with the music. Since so much of it is not physical anymore, unless you in intentionally make something physical. You know what I mean? Like, you're, they're not mass producing. Well, they are mass producing CDs still, but people aren't buying CDs. People aren't buying cassettes anymore. They still sell CDs? Uh, in some places. Do I think really? you can. I think you could probably, I'm sure there's not like a store. Like I'm Best sure you Buy? probably have to. Best Buy might have like a little CD section still. Eight CDs. Yeah, there's two dozen in a rack, one rack unit Walmart. left back there. Yeah. Well, oh, I bet Walmart still sells them. I haven't been in a Walmart in a long time. Uh, Target sells them. Ah, I have seen them in Target. Target still. CD section. Yeah, there's not a lot, but there's a few. <laughs> but I feel like because, you know, you're not only, you're not, they're not mass producing them the way they were a few years ago. So at this point, it's kind of become a, it's become like a, a niche. Yes, you in, you have to intentionally set out to make something like that, something physical. Now, you, you, it's not just an expected thing. Yeah, I don't think labels give a crap anymore. Oh yeah, I'm sure they don't. So that was number one. Uh, number two is 
Simon and Garfunkel's A Bridge Over Troubled Water. Right? And I'll bet no one expected this one to be on here, which I like. I didn't even uh, I didn't even know this was a last album until we until you gave me this list. So And how do you how do you tell the story of the last albums without the genius of Simon and Garfunkel? And to their credit, it's not like they absolutely hated each other so much. They just wanted different things. Yeah, they were heading in kind of different directions. Yep. Garfunkel wanted to try his hand out at acting. Paul Simon wanted to experiment more with their sound and move away from the strictly folk sound that they had created. Uh, their previous album, Bookends, had been uh, the duo's most successful album to date, selling three million copies um, on the heels of uh, Hazy Shade of Winter and, of course, Mrs. Robinson from the Graduate soundtrack. Um, as was their approach, Paul Simon would typically write three or four songs. They would record them, and the, or they would convene and record them, and then they'd take a break, and he'd write three, four more, and they'd come back, and so on and so on. Um, so they were recording this record uh, when Woodstock was going on, and in fact turned down the invitation to perform at Woodstock to continue recording hmm. the record. Uh, in the gaps of recording, Art Garfunkel had auditioned for a, a part in a movie called Catch-22, and won the role and began to film that during the breaks. Uh, filming that movie is what ultimately would break them apart. Uh, the film ended up taking over eight months to shoot and complicated the recording process of this record. They were living together at the time yeah. in a in a house, and they were supposed to be working on music, obviously. And then Art, was he kept heading off. They were filming Catch-22 somewhere in Mexico. Correct. And they were living in this house in L.A., uh, and he kept leaving to to go film and then he'd come back and they would just get a little bit of recording time in and then it'd take off again. Uh, and weirdly enough, um, uh, Simon was writing uh, this. This house was on a street called Blue Jay Way in yeah. Los Angeles, which is the same house where George Harrison was living when he wrote the song Blue Jay Way. And, and uh, uh, Paul Simon basically wrote most of this album in that same house. Serendipitous synchronicity oh very nice there you go tie way it, to bring it tie back, it, tie it I like back it. together i love it uh, so i think i was listening to this record probably for the first time in 35 years or so wow and it's such a beautiful record in places and i forget you know how good their voices sounded together and the musicianship is wonderful and it should be they hired a group of session musicians called the wrecking crew <laughs> to play on it the wrecking crew consists of or did, uh, well, this variation anyway, Fred Carter Jr. on guitar, Larry uh, Connectel on keyboards, he would eventually form the group Bread, uh, Joe Osborne on bass, and the ever-present Hal Blaine on drums. And these mu musicians were omnipresent. They played on several hundred top 40 hits. And Hal Blaine alone played on 140 top 10 hits and over 40 number one hits through the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Wow. He was everywhere. Title song, it's a, it's a lovely little love song to Paul Simon's wife, yeah. Peggy. Uh, the next song, uh, Cecilia, is a great upbeat number. And uh, you find that side one kind of explores some of the South American sounds and percussive influences that would uh, represent, uh, represent a lot of Paul Simon's uh, solo recordings as he moved forward with his career. The one song that seems remarkably out of place here is uh, So Long, Frank Lloyd Wright. Yeah. I don't know if it's a throwaway song or what, but lyrically, 
It's supposed to be a goodbye message to Art Garfunkel from Paul Simon. That's allegedly what was uh, there. Uh, apparently, Garfunkel had wanted to be an architect before the whole singing thing uh, hmm. took off and would often look to Frank Lloyd Wright for inspiration when he was singing. Um, at the end of the song, Simon keeps repeating so long over and over again. And you can hear the producer say in the background, so long, Artie, as the end of the song, right? <laughs> end of the side, end of side one fades away. Hmm. Uh, side two begins with three amazing songs in a row. Uh, one of their biggest hits, The Boxer, which has the very familiar Lila Lie refrain that everyone loves to sing along to, like this. Asking only workmen's wages, I come looking for a job, but I get no offers. Just to come home from the wars on Seventh Avenue. That's such an amazing song. It really is. And I feel like everybody knows that, right? Yeah. Everybody knows that song. I think that that's another one of those songs that I'm sure there are people out there who don't know who it's by, but they recognize it. They recognize it because it's been used in so many movies and so much television. And it's it's such a it's a cultural touchstone song. You know what I mean? It, it's used so much to represent this period between the late 60s and the early 70s. I feel like it's been in a ton of movies, too. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Would you say that's the song that really best represents Simon and Garfunkel over time? I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I think Mrs. Robinson probably represents yeah, the best, but this is a, right. this is a close second. And only because Mrs. Robinson is such a, I mean, the boxer is an amazing song, but it's not one that they're playing on the radio all the time. You know, it's, it's more of a, uh, it crops up when it's needed, I guess, when it fits a situation. Whereas Mrs. Robinson, I think that even people who uh, have not heard of Simon and Garfunkel have heard Mrs. Robinson for sure. I'd say that. I'd say that's true. Yeah. That kind of defines their, their career. I'm trying to yeah. like, is me and Julio down by the schoolyard? Is that him or is that both of them? Is that just Paul Simon? Uh, I can't remember. I don't know off the top of my head. Me neither. I should have looked that up. Uh, the next song is baby driver. Which Great was song played over the end credits of the Edgar Wright movie, baby driver on which it is based. And then uh, the only living boy in New York, which is another thinly veiled message to Garfunkel yeah. from Simon because Garfunkel was filming that movie and it left Simon in New York to write the album all the time, <laughs> but it's a wonderful song. I love it. Uh, do you have more about the songs? I have a little bit more about the album. Okay. Um, just that it was, it was so successful. The album itself received two Grammy awards, uh, album of the year and uh, best engineered recording. It does. It, it is very well. It is very well recorded. Engineered. Yes, I uh, agree with that. And the song "Bridge Over Troubled Water" uh, won three Grammys for Song of the Year, uh, Contemporary Song of the Year, and I originally had Best Instrumental Arrangement of the Year, but I think that is wrong because in another article I was looking at, it said that it was the Best Arrangement Accompanying Vocalist of the year. Hmm. So I don't know. Honestly, I had, I I ran out of time to look up which one is actually correct. So one of those two, um, but it won all of those in 1971, but uh, bridge over troubled water. The song Mm -hmm. kind of went on to become a, um, uh, a note uh, from producer Randy 
uh, Me and Julio is a, a solo Paul Simon song. Uh, that is true. Thank you, Randy. We, we got to get you a mic over there, <laughs> you know, so you can just butt in and we got to get you one of those ones that like clicks into place. It's like, uh, just from the booth. Uh, I think we're going to think what we need to do as an aside, just everyone, if you're listening to this with intent, just, just pause yourself for a second. I think what we need to do is, uh, we're going to need to get a couple of laptops for me and you. And instead of me having paper notes like this, they'll all be there, but he'll be able to instantly chat to my screen and it'll just <laughs> pop up right there and be like, me and Julio is solo. Ah, thank you. Uh, and then I don't have to be like, what? My phone's ringing. Oh, it's Randy. Okay. Me and Julio is a solo. Cool. So we just have, we'll just have a little monitor. We each and we'll each have a monitor and then you just chat us both and be like, I like Move this. away from the mic. You're too close. I like. Well, this. last time you said I was too far away. I don't know what to do anymore. Okay, it's just going to be arrows. Uh, closer, farther away. That's closer, fine. Closer, farther away. I need some sort of instruction. I'm <laughs> clearly failing. Um. So, anyways, "Bridge Over Troubled Water" yes. the song uh, was actually covered by so many people in the '70s and on into the '80s that it sort of became like a, a joke in the music industry and a sort of a, which is sad because it's a great song. Um, but it really was covered by just about everybody. Didn't Elvis but do it? He did. And in fact, that was where I was headed next. Uh, he, Elvis Pres- Presley did a version of this song that uh, actually a bunch of critics who said he wasn't a very good vocalist uh, kind of changed their tune after he put it on his uh, 1970 uh, That's the Way It Is album. But Paul Simon uh, <laughs> said about the Elvis recording, uh, it was in his Las Vegas period and done with conventional thinking. He sang it well, but it would have been nice to hear him do it gospel because he did so many gospel albums and was a good white gospel singer. Uh, It would have been nice to hear him do it that way, to take it back as opposed to the big ending. He seemed to end everything with a karate chop and an explosion. Audio judo. He didn't really add anything to the song. It's not nearly as significant as the Aretha Franklin recording. It's just a pleasure for me that Elvis Presley recorded one of my songs before he died. Oh, that's sweet. which is kind of sweet, but at the same time, just I, <laughs> I literally just picture Elvis ending it with a karate chop. Right. <laughs> Bridge over troubled water. Long note, karate chop. <laughs> Elvis, that's a karate chop. I don't remember. Well, there it is, right there. I don't remember his uh his version. I'll have to go back and listen yeah, to it. I'm not sure that I've ever heard it, but I don't know if I was forced to watch that special one of his specials on TV when I was little. I think my grandparents may have <laughs> right after Lawrence Welk. Ooh, it's Elvis. Like, I don't remember, but Elvis in Hawaii. Oh no. Um, but, but their partnership, you know, was not without its reunions. Yeah. Uh, even though they carried plenty of animosity towards one another, they were able to play several concerts over the years, including the massive concert in central park. That had uh, 500,000 attendees, wow. which was a record back then. They even attempted to record another record in 1982. Uh, but that fell apart when Simon felt like the material was much more suited to his current style than the Simon and Garfunkel style. So uh, they scrapped it. Huh. I did not know that. Uh, but this record sold over 25 million copies. Whoa. Ranked number 51 on the Rolling Stone top 500 records of all time and it still stands 
the test after all these years. Uh, and one would argue that they went out on top. I would agree with that. Which is always an excellent way to end that part of your career. Yeah. They are one of those bands for some reason that I, I do feel like I'm happy that they sort of, they were not exactly happy with one another, but they didn't like blow up. You know what I mean? They didn't like, yeah, they, they didn't self implode on themselves and look ugly. They just kind of separated. Right. Not that we know of. Not that we know of. That's, right. that's true. Behind closed doors, who knows what happened, but publicly they didn't like implode in on themselves and get into, you know, public fights and, and things. It just sort of ended and they went their own separate ways. I feel like there was, there's probably more animosity than we're aware of only because if you look at the state of both of their careers, mm. especially like post 81, 82, like the only time I ever heard of our Garfunkel again was if they did a concert together. Yeah. Paul Simon was always on Saturday night live seemingly. And then he had great, the Graceland record. Yeah. Which for what? 1980, I want to say 86, 85, 86 or something like that. It was everywhere. Yeah. It was, it was on the radio. It was on the, the video with Chevy chase and uh, you can call me Alan. All that was, it was omnipresent. So I feel like there had, there had to be some sort of, uh, Sorry, I Jealousy just, I just had something. a thought that yeah, good kind of hit me hard. I don't know if it's a good thought or not. Uh, I just realized that was one of those things where it's like, oh yeah, that's a great, it's uh, a great video with uh, Paul Simon and Chevy Chase. And then I just realized that nobody today knows what the fuck we're talking about when we say that out loud. Probably. <laughs> First of all, a video. Second of all, well, Paul Simon and Chevy Chase. Who the hell's that? Well, children. <laughs> There was a channel on uh, cable television called Music Television, MTV. And what they used to do was show music videos on the channel all the time, 24 yeah. hours a day. Not four hours a day with 20 hours of road rules, <laughs> but 24 hours of music video. And because nobody could think of really good ideas for music videos back then and didn't have the budget, to film anything cinematically, they went with a ev with whatever the first idea that came to their head was. So grab the most popular movie comedian at the time and have him pretend to play bass sitting on a sofa next to Paul Simon for approximately four minutes. Bingo. Number one video of 1985. That's all you had to do, kids. That's it. It's basically like a TikTok or a vine extended out for uh, four minutes. Let's picture that. Meaningless, <laughs> but useful. Meaningless, but useful. Yes. That's one of the, my life mantras. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so uh, so that's that. Uh, number three, Husker Du. Warehouse Songs and Stories. Uh, this is an outlier of a record, as I'm guessing very few people that listen to our podcast know who Husker Du is. And even if they do, they probably don't know this record. Um, there are a few exceptions. I know a couple people will definitely know this record. Um, and people are probably wondering why the hell we are talking about this when there are so many other more popular last records. Well, I'll tell you why, Kyle. Our platform says, oh. introducing you to music, both new and old. 
That's true. And it's easy to talk about the more popular records, but it won't get you to listen to anything new and interesting. So I'm going outside the box and chose one that'll give you a little more to choose from. This is definitely outside of the box. I know. So, that's why I chose it. <laughs> I liked it, though. It was a, I had never heard this album before, and it was quite good. Really? Yeah. So Husker Du uh, started as a hardcore punk band from Minneapolis in the late 1970s. Uh, they were partially influenced by DOA and the Dead Kennedys. Uh, and through the development of their career, they realized that they were able to write and play with melody and the music didn't suffer. In fact, it gave the music more facets, more sides. Uh, one of my favorite quotes about their style is by David Azarad, as music writer, uh, who said, Husker Du played a huge role in convincing the underground that melody and punk rock weren't antithetical. They could exist together. Uh, so the, for the last several years, the band was together. It consisted of Bob Mould on guitars and vocals, Greg Norton on bass and vocals, and Grant Hart on drums and vocals. Uh, Hart and Mould were the primary songwriters, uh, with them more or less alternating lead vocals, Hart taking the higher-pitched songs, Mould taking the lower-pitched songs. Um, recording of this record was complicated, at the get-go with heart and mold constantly arguing about direction uh, and heart's ongoing drug dependency and the fact that Bob Mold had just recently kicked his lifelong addiction to alcohol coming together. But what ended up being recorded was a furious double LP. Yeah, it's because huge. They couldn't edit because they couldn't decide who would get more songs, so they just put them all on there <laughs> and it's full of the signature kind of loud who's Du sound uh, songs like could you be the one help explain that for those that aren't familiar with who's Du, this is what it sounds like Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, they remind me a lot of social distortion. Yeah, without as much distortion. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But it's, it, a, it's a very good sound, and it is very much that sort of uh, post-punk, like, uh, rock sound that kind of yeah. uh, developed in the early and mid-80s. I like it, though. It's funny, when I was listening to it just now, I didn't realize how much the drummer is behind the actual beat of the song he is trailing big time i don't know if it had anything to do with what he was if he was hammered all the time but he is he's if you listen to it if anyone's out there and listen and, and is a musician and listens to it again you can hear he is trailing the beat and it's a that's the first time i ever heard that that's strange anyway are you sure you're not wasted right now nah, i'm pretty sure okay Just i could checking. be i don't know but uh, you got a little something on your nose, by the way. Do I? No, not at all. But that was a funny cocaine joke, everyone. You're hilarious. Drugs are fun. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, they uh, ended up touring in support of this record in 1987. And on the eve 
of that tour, uh, their longtime manager committed suicide. No. Oh. Further complicating uh, their already raging personal issues. Now they have to manage themselves as they go on this tour. Um, they broke up during the tour uh, after a show in Missouri when uh, the drummer nearly OD'd on methadone he was using to try to kick his heroin habit. Oh, boy. So things are going well. <laughs> and um, I guess so they canceled like the last several shows uh, and Bob Mould went to Grant Hart's parents' house to explain that he was essentially being kicked out of the band and the band was dissolving. So sorry, mom and dad, but your your son's a, a heroin addict and also we're going to stop touring so he won't get any more money. Sorry. Oh, boy. So that's a kick in the slats. Yeah, that sounds like a, probably a great conversation. I can't imagine that went very well. No. Uh, but this record is a, a testament to their legacy. Um if you haven't listened to anything uh, by them, I suggest listening to this record and then go listen to Candy Apple Gray, which is a great record. And then go listen to uh, Bob Mould's next band, Sugar, which was quite a bit more popular than Husker Du. And dig into that. Uh, they had a few more hits like uh, If I Can't Change Your Mind um, and Helpless, which are excellent songs. And um, he's appeared a couple times on a on Foo Fighters records. Um, he's kind of like the godfather now of punk, like the, the aged wise guy that's lived through it all and still <laughs> shows up on these punk records. And, and uh, he just released a new record. I think last year he's excellent. It's just a great songwriter. Hmm. So I chose that one because it's a, it's a powerful record. It's a good record. This was a, a very good choice and a very surprising choice. Like I said, I'd, ne- I'd never heard this album before, and it's very good. It's very um, uh, right up my alley, actually. So, really? Yeah. That's excellent. I like to hear that. That's you like good. you like to hear that it's right, it's right up, up my your alley. alley. Yeah. All right. That, uh, Weirdo. Well. That's fine. I'm not going to deny it. Uh, and uh, number four is uh, The Smiths. Strange Ways, Here We Come. This is one I had picked off. I had picked right off the bat when I first decided uh, decided to do this uh, episode, um, and I've loved this record since it first came out in '87. Uh, this was a really weird period for me. I was listening to progressive music, hair metal, and alternative rock, kind of all interchangeably. Uh, I had all these influences coming at me at the same time, and this was really the apex of musical experimentation as far as like volume, not like how loud it was, but how much I was listening to um, anything put in front of me, I was given, give a chance and it kind of all coalesced into this hodgepodge of stuff that I like. Um, one of the bands that I was in at the time was heavily influenced by eighties alternative uh, played Susie and the Banshees, Joy Division, New Order, and of course the Smiths. Um, my first road into the Smiths was louder than bombs, which people typically refer to as their best, most cohesive record, either that or meat is murder. Uh, but this is my favorite record. So for those who don't know, uh, the Smiths was a British alternative band consisting of Mike Joyce on drums, Andy Rourke on bass, Johnny Marr on guitar and the legendary Morrissey on vocals. Uh, their musical style was kind of hard to define uh, but it's wonderfully pretty and simple music 
infused with Morrissey's very unique and textural voice. Um, you know that voice anywhere. You know Morrissey's voice right away. Uh, this album was their fourth record, uh, with each previous record becoming more successful than the last. In fact, all four of their records appear on Rolling Stone's Top 500. Uh, so good on that publication yeah. for finally getting something right. Well, weirdly, they are, for being a band that was not around for a long time, that only had four albums, they are probably one of the most influential bands on on music sense. I yep. mean, it's, I don't know, I don't want to say I don't know any major band, but there are a lot of major bands and major musicians that cite the Smiths as like a huge influence. Lots of them. people do. Yeah. Lots of people do. I for sure was never cool enough to listen to the Smiths. <laughs> like, I feel like there was like this weird, like entry fee that you had to pay in coolness to be like, oh, yeah, I love the Smiths. Like, I could never get there. It's I'm like, quite expensive. Apparently, yes. Have you seen the movie Less Than Zero? Yes. It kind of costs about that much. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> Jesus. Well, I'm sorry. That's how much it costs, Kyle. <laughs> Have you ever seen the movie Gross Point Blank? It costs about that much. <laughs> um, Yeah, so uh, you know, when you dig deep into the recording of this record, it becomes pretty clear that there's animosity between them, especially Marr and Morrissey, who are the two main songwriters. Marr responsible for writing almost 100% of the music mm -hmm. and Morrissey responsible for writing almost 100% of the lyrics. But it isn't the same as other bands that blew apart. There were typical musical differences, uh, but what was becoming apparent was that Marr did not want to make this style of music anymore. He wanted to branch out and explore some other musical styles mm -hmm. and Morrissey uh, didn't. And he was also resentful of the fact that Johnny Marr would go out and play on Matt Johnson's uh, the, the records or show up here or show up there and not focusing his attention on the Smiths. Marr actually quit the band between the recording and the release of this record. They recorded in what? Uh, March of 1987. Yep. Mar left in July, and this came out in September. September. Yep. Almost October. September 1987, uh, the very beginning of my sophomore year in high school. I was very influenced by what was happening at the time. So uh, this record just has lovely, lush sound, and you can clearly hear many other bands trying to emulate their sound. I'm looking at you, Oasis. <laughs> uh, yet no one would ever sound like this. Love that sound. <laughs> it's just a great sound. It's, it's so easy to listen to. Like originally for me, it wasn't. Mm -hmm. uh, his voice, a lot like Robert Smith's voice from The Cure, took some getting used to for me. Like it, it wasn't in the pocket. It mm -hmm. was because it sounded so different. Uh, you're not used to, I was never used to hearing. I knew plenty of singers were British, 
but I wasn't used to hearing their accent in their singing. Yeah. Like you don't know that Elton John is British by the way he sings. You don't know that until he starts talking or uh, Rod Stewart or anybody, anybody like that. So, so there was all of a sudden this, Oh, he's singing with his accent and it was off putting to a degree to hear that. And so it took some, uh, it took some getting used to. I was just going to say Adele is that same way. (laughs) (laughs) You wankers. (laughs) Oh, you bunch of wankers. Welcome to me. Hello. (laughs) Is that a Southern gospel singer? It's (laughs) in fact, so much so that it's almost off putting. I love her music, but good Lord, man. Yeah. It's, it's, but I, that, that to me, the second you said that, like you can't hear them. That was what catches you off guard. Yeah. But, I love this record and it's, it's lush. It's well-produced. Uh, it's well-written. doesn't suffer from what I consider to be some of the even unevenness, uh, that's on their other records. A uh, few notes about this record. It would reach number two on the UK album chart, stay there for 17 weeks. It was also their highest charting U S record at number 55. Uh, Smiths were also known, uh, for their very unique style of, record covers, album Mm -hmm. covers. Uh, The image on the cover of this is a cropped picture of uh, actor Richard Davalos from a scene in East of Eden with James Dean. Uh, Morrissey is a huge James Dean fan. He even wrote a biography about him, but they couldn't secure the rights to the image of James Dean, so they cropped him out. (laughs) Um, Also, um, I remember talking about this in, in high school with friends. And it's like, what is strange ways? Strange ways is such a weird thing to, what is, I don't even understand what that means. So strange ways is a prison in England. So it's kind of like prison. Here we come. And it's, it's not only just a prison prison. It's a, it was, I should say it is no longer. It's, it's fairly humane as far as prisons go now, but uh, it's from like the 1860s. And it was a horrific prison. Yeah, terrible prison. That was uh, one of the reasons why prison reform happened in the UK, because they were keeping uh, way too many people uh, crammed together in this little tiny space. And I think there's a quote from Morrissey that says it was a like a horrible place where they were cramming 88 people to a cell or something like that. And it just it's it, not a pleasant experience, no. I'm sure. And so, yeah. That's good. I like that. You know, the uh, the second half of that, um, the here we come thing is uh, a line from a, a John uh, Schlesinger film called Billy Liar. Mm. The line is a uh, Borstal here we come. Oh, but they took it and changed it to strange ways. I did not know that. I didn't either until I did some research. You're going to put that in the show notes. Do I need to make a note for you to put that in the show? Notes? Please. Yes. Okay. Tell Kyle. Tell Kyle. To do his job do his job <laughs> um and I'll, I'll forget and then you'll forget and it'll be fine uh johnny marr and morrissey have also uh also have uh, both stated that this was their favorite smith's record so so i have that in common with them which is pretty cool because i don't think i have anything else in common <laughs> but that was important and number five jimmy hendrix experience electric ladyland You're not going to get out of this without this fantastic record. No. Which gives you Hendrix at his peak musically and also at the bottom of his addictions. Um, It is truly, in my opinion, one of the great masterpieces of rock and roll. Um, 
Jimi Hendrix and the Experience would only release three records. There have obviously been hundreds of posthumous records uh, released of varying quality, but there were only three original releases. Uh, Are You Experienced was the debut, Axis Bold as Love was the follow-up, and then this one. All three are in Rolling Stone's top 100. Um, This one uh, would be their only number one U.S. record. Uh, It was recorded over six months, um, and this was Jimmy at his greatest and his most vexing. Uh, He was renowned for his perfection in the studio, Uh, and not that he, and now, uh, now that he had more or less unlimited time and funds, he took advantage of it. It would take take after countless take to get things the way he wanted to sound. Uh, He very much looked at this like cinema as opposed to music. And the atmosphere of the studio did not help. One endless party after another. Girls everywhere. And it's hard to get perfection on a record when there's nothing but distraction. But then, listen. Amazing. Great. And, you know, a lot of people prefer Steve Ray Vaughn version of that, Mm -hmm. which is cleaner, but this is just dirty. It's it really is. It's dirty and it's raw. And I think that that's what Hendrix did best was he. He was at the right time. He was at the right place and he made dirty, raw music that sounds amazing. And it really did. He was able to be that sort of, oh, I don't know the right word here, pinpoint, the 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 head of the pinpoint that thrust music forward sure. again. Like the tip of the arrow. The tip of the arrow. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. One of, yeah, it, absolutely. Uh, he's And one of my very favorite quotes about this record, it was silly. It's very silly. It's taken from the iTunes synopsis. <laughs> Uh, but it truly enc- encapsulates kind of what you're hearing. And so the quote is very simple. It's just a few words. It says, this is the sound of a genius dreaming. Ooh. And when I read that, I'm like, holy shit. That's, there's so much boundary breaking, concept pushing, wall exploding stuff on here. From the techniques he uses with like flange and whammy and echo and all the studio just and then this just the sheer mastery of his guitar playing. And the lyrics, you know, lyrics are clear indications of the day and age. Yeah. And, and the chemicals being consumed in mass quantities. There's a lot about planets and floating in space and peace and love and all things groovy. Yeah. Um, but then Crosstown Traffic is on there, which is just it's just one of the best songs of all time. It is. It, and it's literally about trying to get across town to make love to your girl. Yeah. That's that's all. <laughs> and this is it's a double album with no filler. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the original Voodoo Child is about 15 minutes long, but it's a slow blues jam. 
And it's amazing. And who cares if it's 15 minutes long? It's 15 great minutes. It's 15 amazing minutes. So Jimmy would disband the experience after this record and form the band of gypsies, but never release a record with them. Mm. Uh, plenty of recordings actually exist of the band of gypsies, but they never had a formal release. Uh, and he, in my opinion, was never the same after this record anyway. Uh, not studio-wise. Yeah. Uh, live, different story. Uh, a little about the uh, album cover. Uh, the version everybody sees is the kind of weird, blurred Hendrix face, kind of uh, in swirl of colors. Yeah. And that was from a live performance. Uh, he actually wanted a group photo taken by Linda McCartney uh, at an Alice in Wonderland sculpture, which is, you know, way more fitting for the band with yeah. LSD and all that stuff. And uh, the original album cover proposed by the artist was one with 19 lake naked ladies on a black background, just kind of laying around. Uh, Hendrix did not like that cover and record stores refused to carry it, but it is still available on the European print. So you can actually hmm. still find it to me. This record stands as the crowning achievement in the career and life of a musician that was taken way too soon. Uh, Hendrix, as I'm sure most of you know, passed away in 1970 at the age of 27 when he more or less drank himself to death. Uh, this is one that always makes me wonder uh, kind of what he would have churned out over the past five decades. What kind of innovation would he have come up with? Would he have gotten sucked, got sucked into kind of R&B or funk or disco? Yeah. Like, can you imagine hearing Hendrix playing a disco record? Well, to me, I remember I took this class several years ago. It was a, a jazz appreciation class, which actually beat the, yeah, exactly, jazz hands. Jazz hands. It, it actually kind of made me hate jazz for a while because the professor was just too weird about it. But um, I remember him telling us a story about how, uh, I guess at some point, Jimi Hendrix and Miles Davis were together and they were discussing doing an album together, which I can only imagine would have been just fucking mind blowing oh absolutely uh but they couldn't work together because hendrix was not he didn't know how to read music he didn't know anything formal about music um, and miles davis did and they couldn't ever come to some way for them to musically communicate with one another sure. i mean they could sit down and jam for a while or whatever but they couldn't actually write songs together and so they kind of went their own separate ways but I feel like that's kind of kind of a, a good encapsulation of, of what would have ended up happening had Jimi Hendrix not died is uh, he would have just gone through this weird period where he was trying to figure out what to do next, you know, and he probably would have experimented with a lot of stuff like that that mm -hmm. would have been great or terrible, depending upon which direction he went. But I, I don't know if he would have ever found something like this again. That was kind of my fear, like just thinking about it, like if you wonder, he just kind of fades away. Yeah, because the times shifted yeah, and kind of the experimental age kind of got left behind. Yeah. And it became very processed and manufactured and he did not fit that role. Um, that was one of the things that kind of wrapped up with him about that. To me, he's the preeminent rock and roll guitarist and experimenter and the one that all guitarists that came after him look back to. So if he had been a contemporary of them at some point. Well, they're not looking back to him and he's kind of a, he's an idol, but I don't know if you, you know, especially if you see his skills begin to de deteriorate. Yeah. You wonder, well, you know, then you're 
you're just kind of propping him up and selling tickets. Yeah. But I don't know how much further he goes down that that role. And I mean, it's the same thing that happens with so many musicians and artists. And, you know, if they die young, they, they never get old. They stay that age forever. Right. He's 27 you know, forever. You don't become, you know, fat, fat Elvis. No. Yeah. You're, you're, <laughs> you know, you're you, Joplin. You're yeah. you're Hendrix. You're uh, Kurt Cobain. Yeah. That's it's a sad truth, but it's but a yeah, truth. No, you're right. So that's that's our top five. I got some other last best albums that we didn't talk about, but I encourage you to uh, go listen to. And by the way, we will probably be covering several of these records with full length episodes in the future anyway. Mm. Uh, be hard to get away from them. Um, the Beatles Abbey Road. Of course. Uh, I know technically speaking, Let It Be was the last Beatles album released, but Abbey Road was the last one recorded. So I'm saying Abbey Road. I'm calling it. Uh, Rush's Clockwork Angels, which I could talk about for six to 20 hours if you, like, if you wanted to. That's only if we cut you off, if too. You just like, we're, we're, we're done here. Or we're eat done. Or something. Yeah, so uh, so that one. Um, uh, David Bowie's Black Star, oh, yeah. which is a wonderful record. It is really good. Led Zeppelin's In Through the Outdoor. Also a good record. Which has a few really good songs on it and a couple of duds. Yeah. Uh, the Who's Who, which was just released, might be a little too soon for that, but it's an excellent record. I encourage you to go listen to it. Uh, Nirvana's uh, In Utero. Um, and I have one other that I'm going to mention, but it kind of made me think of a whole different topic when I was taught, like kind of walking through this, that I think we need to do another entire episode about. Um, the record is Give Up by the Postal Service. Huh. Postal Service. Are you familiar with Postal Service? I've heard of them. I've never listened to so them. So it was Ben Gibbards from Death Cab for Cutie. It was his side project. Okay. And it's very um, it's very electronic-based instead of uh, guitar-based. I'm trying to think of the band that they sound like, but it's not coming to me right off the top of my head. Um, this was their only album. Maybe that's the future episode. Hmm. Best only Ooh, albums. Oh, I like that. Like they released one. It's really good, but there was nothing after it. That's what you get. So I feel like that episode is going to be a lot of those type of bands. Like here's, you know, a musician from this band and a music, not quite super groups, but, you know, a few musician musicians from other pretty good bands that got together and made one album together. And then we're like, and we're done. Exactly. Did you have any uh, uh, additional you, ones? You got them all. Did I? Yeah. Uh, the, um, uh, I encourage you to go listen to Give Up by the Postal Service. It's a it's a wonderful record, and it does not sound like Death Cab for Cutie. Nothing wrong with Death Cab for Cutie, but it's just outside of that that genre. It's yeah. a little bit different. And because we try to be fair, I have a few worst last albums Ooh. to round us out because it's fun. <laughs> uh, first one, Genesis Calling All Stations oh. from 1997. This is one of my favorite bands of all time. And they released this pile of garbage, and I still have not recovered. Phil Collins walks away. He can't just call it a day. Yeah. Wash your hands. No, and you walk gotta. Away. You gotta hire this this boob to make just terrible. Uh, it's just awful. It's just. And in light of that, Genesis just announced a few days ago that they're touring later this year in UK. After 13 years, uh, like a 20, 20 dates in the UK, and are, are they going to do some songs from Calling All Stations? Yeah, I don't think so, because <laughs> it's crap. 
<laughs> Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's Love Beach. Ugh. The band that gave us Welcome Back, My Friends, to the show that never ends, gave us Love Beach. <laughs> I have very little to say about this. It's just sad. And then one for the ages. The Eagles' last record, Long Road Back to Eden. Oh, boy. Because they should have just let hell freeze over, <laughs> like they said. What a just, and there's so many bands. Like, and I had more on that list. I had more, I, I had some that I wish they would have stopped at one last record, but then they made a second bad last record. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at you, Jane's Addiction. <laughs> you could have just walked away. And you know what? If you had walked away after Ritual, Dilo Habitual, we would have been talking about that one tonight because yeah. it, it's probably would have been one of the greatest last records of all time. Oh, yeah. But then you just went ahead and go, kettle whistle. This is going to be good. <laughs> it's just trash. But that's uh, that's what I got for tonight. It's pretty good. That's all. That uh, was a good it was a good education. It's a good variety, too. Right. And it's nice to break up, you know, instead of covering one record yeah. at length, but just kind of do a little topic and, and hopefully get some feedback from, from people out there, because I know you're going to disagree with me. Oh, for sure. And I encourage you to, um, I want people to tell me I don't like that record or calling all stations. That's my favorite Genesis record. You stupid idiot. <laughs> and you're entitled to, to that opinion. I, I want that opinion. I, Cause I would, I just want people to be listening to stuff. Um, it's the lifeline that kind of holds us together. Yeah. Please share that opinion with us too. Uh, where where would where would somebody share it? Kyle? You can email us uh, info at audiojudo.com, uh, facebook.com forward slash audiojudo, uh, Twitter we're at audiojudo, uh, Instagram we're at audiojudo. You can visit the webpage audiojudo.com. Mm-hmm. I think there's a way to give us some feedback on there as well. There is. But uh, yeah, you, please do let us know. Send us your critiques. Your uh... And your praises too. You know what? Yeah. I'm not above taking a, a slap on the back, and saying that's really inf- the old, it's good information. The guy. old the old attaboy, right? Well done. The the kudos as we uh, as we enjoy the space that we're in now. It's very, very comfortable in here. Yeah, I like it. Um, but let us know what you think. Keep listening. Uh, we will try to continue to keep you informed and give you the best that we can do. What the what's next? What are we talking about next? The next album is uh, Mika, The Boy Who Knew Too Much. Yes, that is a Kyle selection. It is an either, uh, I have found that uh, people either think of this as pop trash or a fantastic album. So I am right in the middle. There you go. I think there is some really good work on it, and there's also some pop trash. Some pop trash. So I will uh, probably just uh, rip it apart. No. That's fine if uh, you do. It'll be informative. It's a he's an excellent artist and should be entertaining. So uh, please continue to listen, and uh, we'll keep doing our best for you. And have a good couple of weeks, everybody. Until next time. Bye bye.
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shot? Would they shot? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.